Welcome to the Orange Socks Podcast, where we are inspiring life despite a diagnosis. I'm your host, Dr. Gerald Nebaker. In this episode, I talk with Janelyn and Rocky, who have eight children, five of whom are adopted. Two of their biological children have cystic fibrosis, and one of those has Prader-Willi syndrome. One of their adopted children, who is from China, has Down syndrome. When Katie was born, she was full term, but really low muscle tone, low birth weight. We could just tell something was wrong. She couldn't suck, she never cried. We found out she had cystic fibrosis very quickly. We just did her blood work right away since it's a genetic disease and her sister had it. So we did that quickly and found out within a few days, but knew her symptoms were not the cystic fibrosis. And so it took a couple months and then we ended up in the hospital just after a rough weekend and they realized she had a collapsed lung at the time. And so we stayed for about two weeks, but at least in that time we could see doctors. We had doctor's appointments set with a neurologist and all sorts of people in Houston, Texas. It was just really busy and hard to get into some of those doctors. So while we were inpatient, we got to run lots of tests and send off for chromosome testing and found out a few weeks later she had Prader-Willi syndrome. So that was detectable with the chromosome? Yes. Yeah, she has a deletion on one of her chromosomes. Everyone with that diagnosis has that same no, chromosome No, I believe there's three ways, if I remember, that you can have it. There's like 70 some percent that have how she does, and so she has a slight deletion on the paternal chromosome 15. Okay. Some get it by having two maternal 15. There's a few that have an actual genetic defect on the 15 that can cause it. So if you have a child with that, you can actually have a chance of having another child with it because it's a genetic. Hers just happened, kind of like Down syndrome with Emma, where yep. <laughs> just an extra and hers was just a deletion on one. So. Okay. Yep. So yeah. those two kids, both with cystic fibrosis, mm -hmm. one and with, Katie with an add-on. Yeah. And that first year was a lot, a lot of care. Katie's first year. Tell me about that. After we hospitalized, we had to give her a G-tube to eat because she couldn't suck. And so just feeding her through the G-tube took time, but because of her cystic fibrosis, we also had to do treatments at least four times a day. So we had to do manual chest PT on her. She was only five pounds probably at the time or six. So to do manual chest PT and then nebulized treatments. She had another machine called an IPV machine that kind of would help force air into her lungs and suck it back out for several months. And then she was on oxygen for about nine months. So just keeping up with her care all day, every day. <laughs> Medications and all of that. I mean, we were a little used to it with Abby. Abby went through not near that. Abby could already kind of sit and do her own treatments and stuff. She was almost four. So yeah, it took a lot of care that first year or so. And then therapy, just like with Down syndrome, she had physical therapy, occupational therapy, feeding therapy, and speech. She's had it her whole life, of course, just to function as well as she does. But we made it through that first year. <laughs> so how much more complicated does it make it also then with the diagnosis of Prader-Willi? It was very complicated and the doctors weren't sure you know they were like we because she was so unique they didn't know how it would affect I think the hardest thing is that with the low muscle tone it was so hard in the beginning and even now it's just harder for her to clear her lungs and stay active to keep her lungs clear with that thick mucus obviously Prader-Willi syndrome has been a positive with her weight Prader-Willi syndrome they tend to carry more weight because they don't produce lean muscle mass and that's 
been helpful for her is we didn't have to struggle after the first couple years where it was hard for them to gain weight. Then she gained weight and that part's been fine. Actually, it's opposite. So this one has to have like 4,000 calories a day or more to maintain. <laughs> and Katie can only have about 1,000. That makes it a little difficult in the house. Katie's been a rock star and does awesome with what she can eat and what others can't. So the CF stuff, they just kind of, well, we'll do the CF care and treatments and you're gonna do this for that. And with Prader-Willi syndrome, you'll just do this for that. And we'll just see how it crosses over. But I think it's definitely made her lungs sicker. She's usually in the hospital a couple times a year for IV antibiotics. She has a central port now in her chest for IV antibiotics the last several years. So it just takes more care for her, it takes a little more work. <laughs> so then after the first two, you adopted. Yes, we adopted our first son. Okay. Katie was almost five. You can go, you can go play on your From out of country? No. Domestic was, adoption? Mm -hmm. Domestic okay. adoption. Yeah. All right. Before our oldest was born, we actually tried to adopt. It had taken many years to get pregnant, and uh -huh. so we'd kind of gone through that process and then ended up getting pregnant before we adopted. And so when suddenly it felt like it was time to adopt, it was kind of a very quick decision. But it was a decision we'd made seven years before just in our brain and in our hearts that we knew we would maybe adopt someday. And his adoption happened very quickly from the time we really felt strongly and made the decision we would adopt. We watched him be born three weeks later. Really? Yeah. So his was very quick. That is very quick. Then your next child, who's seven, was biological. Yes. So the weekend we brought him home from the hospital, we found out we were pregnant. Oh, ha. And had her eight months later. <laughs> I'll be darn. She does not have cystic fibrosis, just a carrier. But a, so but a carrier happy. of it. Okay. Then you had another domestic adoption. That child is typical, doesn't have issues. And then another adoption that was domestic. But it looks like that he has been recently diagnosed with a processing delay and mm -hmm. selective mutation. Tell me about that. High anxiety, visual, perceptual delay. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at what Rochelle. Wrote. I was like, how did you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, that's impressive. Fear the orange socks. Yes. We, we know all. <laughs> yes, exactly. Orange socks rules. Or pink today. I probably should have worn orange for you. You should have. <laughs> so, selective mutism is something that we didn't realize he actually had. At home, he's very aggressive um, in terms of you know, playing with all the kids and just absolutely an extrovert. Occasionally he'll do some wandering around the couch in the same patterns back and forth, which are called stemming. Yep, occasionally some stemming behaviors, but we didn't think much of that. He was kind of growing out of most of that. And then the school teacher last year, about two months into school, asked if he ever spoke. And we're like, what do you mean does he ever speak? Well, at home, does he talk? We can't shut him up. What do you mean? He talks? We're like, yeah, does he not talk in school? Two months, not one word, not one to his friend, no one. We're like, okay, that's not normal. So we started pursuing, trying to figure that out. We had him taken to a little local place here that did a quick little series of tests on him and, and decided that he had was manifesting some ADHD, which, I mean, I'm ADHD, so I totally understand that. And then it just didn't quite feel perfectly right. And so we did a little research. My wife, she's the queen of figuring this stuff out, did some research and found the Selective Mutism Center, which kind of matched all of the things he had. And so we contacted them and we actually ended up heading out to Philly to meet with the group out there. And they quickly were able to discern that they didn't believe it was completely like a selective mutism in terms of just not speaking because he didn't want to talk, but because he was a little bit delayed in how 
language, you know, reached his brain. We've been working now with them for, gosh, about six months, seven months. And he is absolutely coming out of a shell. He now talks at school, he gets up front. I think to be learned from that is when you identify that a child has anything that seems off normal, that quick response and proper care can mitigate those things fairly quickly, if attacked quickly, right? If you wait for a long time and let that, you know, like an old plasma screen burn its image, you know, into the screen, it's harder to actually, I think, help those things. And so uh, that's one of the things that I think I've been grateful for my wife on is that she is so willing to, you know, try to figure out and act quickly on solving these problems. Obviously there's some sibling comparative things going on and if Abby can eat 4,000 calories a day and she can eat 1,000, does that cause any? All sorts of issues, typically not for Abby because, yeah, you know, yeah. she's constantly wondering why other people are getting things like, you know, that she's not. It's hard sometimes for her to grasp that just because Prater Willie, one of the manifestations is the hypothalamus doesn't regulate properly, which you probably already heard. So that means that she's always hungry, like literally her mind says she's always hungry. And so when you're always hungry and your family doesn't give you food, you can see why the behaviors then become a little bit, a lot of people they say grow up like sociopathic, but, but she's not actually done that at all. She's been great with it. And it's really been kind of a rigid schedule that my wife keeps. That's I think probably the reason why most of that is true. Yeah, they call it food security. They try with kids. A lot of families who have kids with Prader-Willi syndrome, you literally have to lock all the food away. So mm -hmm. everything has to be locked, the pantry, the fridge in classrooms. I mean, if they know there's food somewhere, they're gonna find it if it's in the trash can, anywhere. Right. But you don't have to we don't, do We have that. not had to do that with her. That's she's awesome. been able to just stay on a schedule and she knows since she's going to eat, breakfast and lunch, snack, dinner, she's okay. You know, she's sought food a few times. As she grows, she'll go through phases a little bit and we'll find things or, especially if we're out of town and it's a babysitter or something like that, once in a while, she'll try to get away with it. But she functions higher than we ever thought she would. And she knows really well about the kinds of food she should eat and what would be better. And, you know, if it's a birthday, she can have cake. If it's, <laughs> if we as a family have a celebration, she can have some, we just do more portion control. And that's actually helped too in, in the family to be something that's easy to help the kids understand that we don't all get treated equal, right? Because a lot of times kids are like, well, that's not fair. So-and-so gets this or so-and-so gets that. And it's easy to say, well, we agree that's not fair. I mean, it's also not fair to your sister that she has to deal with the things she has to deal with. And would you rather have that than not play on the iPad for the next hour? I mean, so they can understand by comparing and contrasting that, okay, I guess life isn't always the same for everyone. And so because of that, we can treat, frankly, all the kids differently. Our oldest has no curfew because she's shown through years that she can be trusted and mm -hmm. that she is responsible and she's very adult. And so that's been great. Now, the next one's gonna do that? I don't know, I'm not sure. We'll play that by ear. That's probably really smart because your kids are so different one from another. And I think having that precedent is probably really important. You adopted him internationally from the Congo when he was three, but he has two blood disorders. Did you know that at the time when you adopted him? We didn't know much. He was sick. I mean, he was sick in Africa. He just had malaria a lot of times. On our first visit to see him, he was very sick, had an enlarged spleen. So we assumed that he must have some sort of blood disorder just with his enlarged spleen problem. And that actually was good because it gave us some leverage to put him in a foster home out of the orphanage. And so we were able to put him in a foster home our first visit and he stayed there for I guess almost 18 months. Yeah, which is a better situation. And the orphanage, I mean, they try to do the best they can, but no one there eats 
much more than once a day. And most of the time the food that they do eat is not, you know, overly nutritious. And so a lot of kids don't have a lot of nutrition going on and then they don't have the greatest place to sleep. I mean, if you look at the walls next to the beds when you came in, you'll see little red smears all over the walls by all the beds. And we were trying to figure out what those were, and then we asked somebody and they said, oh, those are the bed bugs. So all the beds are in, you know, infested, and so they cause knotting and all these little wounds on their legs and their body because the bed bugs come out at night and you know, chew on the kids. And so if they catch one, they'll smash it, and, you know, blood everywhere, which is of course their blood. So these just little blood marks all over the walls. And so we go in and try to help out when we can and replace mattresses and repaint the place to kind of clean it up. But even when you replace the mattresses, the people that are there, everything is money to them. Even a little bit, they can sell and they get money for. So the people that ran the orphanage, you know, they didn't really want to give up the old mattresses, even though they were absolutely disgusting and, you know, they're bed bug ridden. And so we had to work hard to get them out of the orphanage and gone to another place so that they would never come back. So we could try to give these kids a better shot at no bed bugs for a while. And you went to Africa seven times? Yeah, I believe that's right. Yeah, seven times in about a year and a half. Tell me about that international adoption. Was that difficult? Was it hard? Obviously, with seven trips, you were there a lot. Did yeah. you have to go seven times? We chose to. There were a lot of things going on in the country in terms of with their current political situation where once kids were adopted in the U.S., they didn't want to let them out. They wouldn't give them exit visas to leave, even though they had a visa to come into the U.S. and were technically completely adopted and recognized internationally by being adopted by an American family, they wouldn't let them out. And so we had to work hard to try and get the case pushed on as quickly as possible. And to do that, much easier and more effective to do face to face and working with people and letting them remember that you're gonna be back and that you care. And, and then also helping, you know, if they need help with situations over there or circumstances that put us in a place in a position we can help them as well which was, I think, appreciated. And so just we tried to help the process go as smoothly and quickly as possible. And that was kind of a key part of it, really. At the same time, we got to, you know, spend time with him. All of those visits we would go and his foster family would bring him to us. And so we would keep him those four or five days, you know, in the hotel and play and swim and do things. Mostly him and I and Rocky would go do paperwork and the different things. And we spent time with his foster family. And so it made his transition home a lot easier. I think he transitioned home very well when he got home. Well, one thing that helped too is that we still had a lot of kids here. <laughs> we have a lot of big family with little kids his age. And he was used to that from his foster family family and the orphanage as well. And we FaceTimed while we were there yeah. with our kids and him. So yeah. our kids got to see him repeatedly. And then we'd also FaceTime with the foster family when we weren't there. So we tried to keep you know top of mind with him as well, just so he would be able to remember us. Because when we first went there the very first time, he was two years and you know nine, 10 months. And so when we finally ended up getting him, he was almost four and he'd seen us a number of times in person for days at a time. And then he'd also seen us, you know, via FaceTime and also the family. And so he quickly assimilated into our family and got along fabulously with little kids. I used to make picture books and I'd take them over of the house and all the kids again. And so we just tried to make things familiar for him. International mm -hmm. adoption can be hard and not all countries allow you to do that, where the first time you're seeing the child or they're seeing you is when they're home the first mm -hmm. time, or you went and picked him up and brought him home. Mm -hmm. And so we just wanted to facilitate a little bit easier transition for him home and I think it helped a lot and he was still so young he learned English very quickly very quickly French was the language the foster family had taught him and Lingala was his native tongue and we would speak a little French to him and have people come speak French and he just had zero interest just none and he just assimilated very quickly into English and has done very well he's in kindergarten and just learning awesome I mean 
He's doing really great. He's a great kid. With all the kids and all the different needs of the kids, sometimes the older children or the other children, siblings in a family, experience what's called a glass child syndrome. What that means is the parents are so concerned with the needs of the siblings that they look right through the child, so that's the glass child. And I just wonder, how have you felt being the oldest of this tribe? Did you ever feel like you were, gosh, maybe your needs weren't met or that was all good? Or Just tell me about that a little bit. Never. I've never felt like that ever. Yeah, my parents are very loving to everyone. Well, I don't think anybody has ever felt like that in our family personally. I have heard of situations like that in other families and some of my friends. They're like, how do your parents do it? I don't get it. My parents only have like three kids and they don't ever have time for me. I don't know how they do it, but they're good at it. <laughs> so how do you think, especially having siblings that have some needs, some special needs, especially your youngest sibling is Down syndrome, and all kinds of different needs. How do you think that this wonderful big family has shaped you personally? What difference is that going to make? How are you different from your peers that might not have had the same experience? I feel like I have a better view of what people are going through and like I can get that everybody has like their own personal problems and that everybody's different and that not everyone is the same and I feel like some of my other friends, they just don't get that. They're just like, oh, like their life is totally okay, like they're fine. But once you like have something, then you come to realize that pretty much everybody goes through stuff. And even if it's small, like it could still be a big deal to them. So I feel like you just have to be careful of other people and like their personal feelings and you can't like push that aside. Okay, awesome. We well, are awesome. You're a great kid, I can tell. So your last daughter, Mm -hmm. You adopted Emma from China. And how did that go? Was that an easier or harder mm -hmm. process to adopt from China than from the Congo? A lot easier. Easier. It was easier. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Hague countries. There's a Hague Convention. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Those countries apparently are legitimately way easier because they've had to go through a lot of rigorous, you know, standards and setup to make the process smooth and without the corruption that we saw in the Congo. So what they said you could count on in terms of timelines, everything. And it happened. Paperwork was supposed to be done, it was done. You know, when we showed up in country, everything was ready. <laughs> like hers was a fast adoption. So did you pick her out specifically? Mm -hmm. Yep, we found her on rainbowkids.org. Yep, and picked her up. And you saw a picture of her? Mm-hmm, and then they had a few little videos. Okay, and yep. why her? Just felt like she was supposed to be the one in our family. That kind of seems to be a theme throughout this whole thing. My wife, most of the time, has felt like we should do certain things. And so we believe in inspiration and revelation and we think those things occur. And so we try to follow and do those things to the best of our ability. And we know that if we do that, that things will turn out all right. One of the most interesting things that I've noticed is that that phenomenon of people recognizing their child when they see a photograph, if they have that. And I interviewed Reese's Rainbow, and that's very common. I just wanted to see if it was mine, maybe because no. we're here in this part of the country. Right. <laughs> no. No, I think God directs his children to be in the homes they need to be in, absolutely. And we felt that with our son from the Congo. We had felt this pull there for a while. We had friends adopting from that country, but at the same time we were adopting all those other kids and thought we could never go through all that. Then finally like, okay, maybe show us some pictures of a few kids in the orphanage that aren't matched. And his picture just right away, I mean, I was like, wow. We showed Rocky, he's like, hmm. And we sat on his for a few months. It wasn't this right away, because just, it felt impossible, his situation, because their country was in really a mess. And just 
after about six months of sitting on it, felt like we needed to push forward and it would work out and it did, it really did. But so his was our first experience of kind of, our others were domestic and at birth, right. birth moms picked us, but him and our baby, yeah, I mean, hers, we just pulled up rainbowkids.org and started going through little ones with Down syndrome in Asia and just kept coming back to hers within two or three weeks time and thought, okay, I think we're supposed to move forward with her. And she just fits perfectly in this family. I mean, all kids with Down syndrome are the kindest, most loving, sweetest. And she's been home almost a year. And the end of February is when we went out last year. And she's just really acclimated, of course, so well. The kids just love her to death, spoiler rotten. I tell people out of my eight kids, really, she's the easiest right now. <laughs> she, I mean, she has to have therapy and it's been a long year of trying to help her learn to eat. And she'll get there, she'll get there, she'll eat and she'll walk eventually. She's doing really well and enjoying her time in therapy and stuff. I mean, she's just, she was a great addition to our sweet little family. So. You have kids of all sizes and shapes and <laughs> colors and abilities and what do your neighbors think of, the, of this tribe or your church members? Do you get people looking at you going, because we did, when we would go out, we'd have people going, you know, counting oh, yeah. all the heads because we had. Or they say to us, because there are a lot of them are the same age or close to it. Yeah. And the same size. And the same size. People would say, oh, do you guys have a nursery? Yeah. Like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> at our house. I get asked often, and I'd pull up in the big van if I run a daycare, if I have a preschool. <laughs> oh, no, they're all ours. Or we'll be in line to get on an airplane because we like to travel and we travel with the kids. We take them all over. And they'll say, oh, what kind of a group is this? And we'll say, oh, it's just a fam family it's a unit. Family. <laughs> you know, we didn't adopt, but all of our bio kids, which is a shock that we'd have that many because we started at 30. <laughs> Our first child was born at 30. <laughs> One of the things that we noticed when we traveled, we went to Missouri. We did some church historical yep. signs. Anyway, we had people doing the yes. counting and all this stuff. Are they all yours? Or, you know, that kind of thing. But one of the things that was not uncommon, we had multiple older people say, I wish we would have had more children. And I thought, isn't that interesting? I was thinking that they'd say, oh my gosh, the population, you know, whatever. We'd get negative. We didn't. We yeah. got all positive from those that spoke to us, spoke about, hmm, I just wish we would have had more. Isn't this wonderful, this big tribe? When we first moved here, where we are now, we had two children. I thought we were done. So we were already discussing and talking about all the cool adventures we were gonna have <laughs> when they left the home, because we'd still be young and vibrant and we could go out and tour the world. And then, I mean, in a three-year window, window. Yeah. we went from two to eight almost. And initially there was some shock. And, you know, I lost some of the dreams that I personally thought that I wanted. And then as this has developed, I have realized that, yeah, I traded dreams. I traded what I thought I wanted for what was actually best. And so here we are, right? We're sitting here and, and I think about it and I take more children tomorrow. I guess kind of wrapping up here a little bit as you think about it, what has been your greatest challenges in trying to get this family that you currently have? For me personally, it's been the evolutionary and growth process of going from kind of a more selfish individual who, like I said before, had desires of doing things, right? These things they wanted to do to someone who was less prideful, hopefully. More, More humble, humble, hopefully, <laughs> right? And just enjoying the challenges that come. I, I mean, you're probably not going to see it in the video, but 
earlier, we've had children in the background crying and screaming, and we had another one that refused to leave because they wanted more, you know, screen time. And to just recognize those things as just fun little events in life that we get to be part of, right? We get a part of their learning and their growth. And to me, the challenge has been putting away, frankly, the natural man and trying to become a kinder, gentler soul. How about for you, Jenlyn? Oh, they're daily, <laughs> the challenges. <laughs> no, it's, um, and of course, it's a huge blessing and the challenges are different every time. Of course, having kids with special needs and health problems and all of those are some of the biggest challenges, I think. Thankfully, our oldest started us out with having her health problems. And so we learned very quickly how to conquer a lot of those challenges that people do as far as financially, health insurance and medications and some of those that would be a huge burden and stress on our family if we hadn't figured out early how to navigate that system and been extremely blessed with a husband who works very hard, such an amazing entrepreneur that provides really well. For that stress, as well as the financial stress of adopting all these kids, it's not cheap. Each one was very expensive. And we just laugh about it. We're like, well, we could have like two nice boats right now, or we could have all of, all of our kids. And definitely it changes you as a person. I never thought growing up I would be a mom to this size of a family, this kind of a family. But like Rocky, I would never change it. You know. I go to bed lots of nights like, okay, we just made it through another day <laughs> as they continue to grow. And we sit in bed sometimes and think of how it's gonna be in 10 years when this kind of bunch that's all the same age together as our oldest age and they're teenagers all at the same time. And how fun that's gonna be. And we like you, we got all these very late. And so we're gonna be quite old. <laughs> and we've had lots of sleepless nights in the beginning with all of them so close and as teenagers, but we definitely wouldn't change it. I mean, the challengers are there. You know, I think for me, our house emptied all of a sudden. It's yeah. like I woke up one day and they're all gone. Yeah. I have one left, you know, at home. And it's just, that's why I look, I smile at your, because yeah. it's like, I remember that's what our household was like. Oh, it was this bedlam. We never got invited over to anybody's house. <laughs> just because for dinner or for even a visit, yeah. just because we were such a footprint when we yeah. got there. That's all gone, I miss it. I miss it terribly, yeah. you know. We love it, we too. know that it will be like that with a big group and that's a blessing that will never be empty because of our couple sweet special needs girls. You know, we're hoping every day to just continue to instill love in them, that they'll be as close as they are now when they're married and gone and together and have a big extended family as they continue to grow. They sure love each other. People stop us and talk to us. We went on a cruise this summer and, and it was always so stressful in the dining hall with all of them and being noisy and loud, but we actually had people stop and be like, we admire what you do. These are great kids. You know, this was really fun to watch. And of course, as the mom, I was so nervous every meal and all of those things, but people will stop and ask, how do your kids love each other so much? We don't know. I mean, we try and they're close in age and we just hope that that continues as they grow. That's great. Thanks for taking the time to visit with yeah. me again. Sure. You get this full, rich story. What a wonderful family <laughs> you are and great parents. Glad I know you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Orange Socks is an initiative of Rise Incorporated, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting and advocating for people with disabilities. Follow Orange Socks on Facebook and Instagram and visit our website, orangesocks.org, for more stories and to find national and local resources to help parents of children with disabilities.